please be seated. Our passage this morning is Psalm 49. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Psalm 49. As we come to our passage this morning, I will read, please follow along, after which we'll pray and then continue. Psalm 49. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me and those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, and the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boast. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Let us pray. Father, we do lean upon you, rely wholly and totally for you to give us your wisdom, your truth, your understanding. Lord, at this time, we do pray that as you promise and come down to meet with your people, as you condescend to your lowly servants who you have called into your family, we pray that you would give us a spirit whom we need to understand all of your scriptures. We pray you would do this work at this time. In Christ's name, amen. Our psalm can be broken into three major segments. The who, what, when, where, why. The who is spoken to. The what is the thing that will happen in the psalm will be taken care of in the first five verses of this psalm. Then we'll spend the majority of our time this morning in verses 6 through 15. It'll really give us the meat, the punch of the psalm, what the psalmist is meaning to convey. And then as we get to verse 16 through verse 20, we'll really find that the psalmist is reiterating, readdressing, repeating what he's already made clear in the center of the psalm. And so for this, to give you an idea of where we're going in this passage, we'll get an understanding of context in the beginning. We'll cover three major aspects, and then we'll find ourselves closing by the time we get to verse 16. And so beginning with what is this psalm about? What is the psalmist trying to teach, trying to convey? What question will be answered this morning from the scriptures for our edification, for our rebuke, our correction? And before we even get into verse one, I want you to look at the superscript. Super means above, before, greater than. 
That just means the words that are before the first verse of the psalm. And it says, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. What do we learn even from that little bit of information included for us? To the choir master. This psalm was used in the gathering together of God's people. It was used in the presence of the corporate worship of God. It was recited, proclaimed, taught from for the benefit of the people. And so too it can benefit you, God's people gathered together on his day, the first day of the week, that he might be glorified, that he might be praised, that we might be trained in righteousness. And it says a psalm, that just means song in Hebrew, of the sons of Korah. It helps at this time to understand who Korah was. We need to know our Old Testament to get the most out of this psalm. So to find out who Korah was, we'd have to go back to the book of Numbers, specifically Numbers 16. The people of God are wandering in the desert. They've been through the exodus. They've been taken out, led under the leadership of Moses by God's hand across the Red Sea, freed, and God is establishing his order for his people, both civil and ceremonial. That is the way that God would be worshiped. He gives prescription for how he is to be praised, honored, how sins are to be addressed. And a special category of people are set aside for keeping God's sacrificial law, his Levitical law. That is the keeping of the tent, the keeping of, the keeping of how we meet with God. That was the Levites. Korah was a Levite. Korah worked in the temple. Korah would have been one of many families within the Levitical uh, segments of God's people that would have done the day-in, day-out work of making sacrifice, of getting the animals ready, of leading the procession in praise and worship and prayer. And also, In addition to Korah being a Levite, Moses and Aaron were Levites. And so what happens in the storyline of number 16 is it's called Korah's rebellion. Korah gets 250 households of Levites and he leads them before Moses and Aaron. And he goes to Moses and Aaron and says, hey, we're all Levites. And his his issue, his rebellion, he says to Moses and Aaron essentially, who made you king over us? Who made you judge over us? Well, the answer to that biblically is God. God appoints Moses to office as prophet. God appoints Moses as leader of the nation. God appoints Aaron as the priest who would wear the ephod and his sons who would oversee the worship within the Levitical system. And so you could say that Korah was getting too big for his britches. He was arrogant. He was proud. Wanted to be promoted above that office to which God had appointed him. You see, Korah refused to worship God in the way and at the level that God prescribed for him too. Korah said, I can do better. I'm great enough. Despite what God has said, I will rise in my own power and in my own strength and in my own abilities. Why not? I'm a Levite after all. And God's lesson for Korah and for the people of God, God says to Moses and Aaron, step aside. I am going to destroy Korah and those who are with him in this rebellion for his arrogance, for him thinking that he can improve upon the ways in which I have told you explicitly to worship me. And Moses and Aaron go before God and they say, God, would you not relent? Give them a chance to turn to repent. And God allows it. But ultimately, Korah refuses to repent and those 250 households with them. And so the earth opens up and the people who are with Korah and Korah himself destroyed, completely destroyed, total destruction of those people for their sin against God and refusing to honor God in the way that he prescribed that they must. Now think about the sobriety of which the sons of Korah must have delivered and led the people in worship regarding the truth of this passage. The gist of this passage 
because it won't spoil it to tell you it early, is to trust in God and not your own strength. Trust in God. And the sons had to say, don't make the mistake that dad did. Don't make the mistake of so many of our fathers in Israel as they were wandering in the desert that they thought that they could tell God how he would be worshipped. The catechism tells us that God is a spirit. How do you know how to worship a spirit? The answer, says Ligon Duncan from RTS, is that you have to have the spirit tell you. The spirit must condescend to tell you how a spirit is to be worshipped. When we say that God is spirit, it means he's infinite, eternal, unchanging, and his power and wisdom, holiness, justice, and truth. That is not us, but we long to be like that. We long to approximate to God's holiness that we might honor him more. And it's in this context that then we understand what the sons of Korah have to teach and who they teach. Look at verse one. Who is being spoken to as an audience of the psalm? We already said it's for worship. Hear this, all peoples. All peoples of the congregation. All peoples that come to worship God. But it's more than that. They go further. They say, this truth is for all men, whether they worship the God who created them or not. Give ear all inhabitants of the world. That is to say, whether you acknowledge that there is a God who made you, whether you acknowledge there is a God who has made a way of salvation, he will win out in the end. His truth is truth, whether you submit to it or not. And the Christian does well and relishes in the fact that God's truth is for your good. And it goes further in verse 2. Both low and high, rich and poor together, the employee and the employer, the student and the teacher, the child and the parent, the old and the young, the rich and the poor together. It means that whether you don't have two nickels to rub together or you are independently wealthy and already retired, that this psalm is true for you. In verse four, it tells us of what type the teaching will be. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I had one teacher in seminary very succinctly described a proverb as a short pithy statement. That is, it bears out truth principally. It's meant to be applied generally. And then further in verse 4, it says, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. How do riddles work? A riddle is essentially a question seeking an answer. And normally, riddles, especially when working with the young, working with those who are instructed, it's didactic. It's to teach. And so as someone works through getting to the answer, they rule out things that are untrue as they move towards the answer that is true. And the psalmist says, as we do that together in this psalm, verse three, it will be of a certain quality. The answer will be. The answer will be one, biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, God's truth. That is not the wisdom of men. And further, the meditation of my heart, my inward being will rely upon the understanding that God gifts gives in relation to who he is as it's taught in this passage. So what riddle is asked? What question is to be answered? Verse five, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? He elaborates on that question further in, but it could be summarized this way. God, how am I supposed to respond to you? How am I supposed to relate to the God vertically who made me and to my neighbor who is beside me whenever worldly men use worldly means to seek or to get worldly advantage. Worldly men using worldly means, worldly tactics, worldly strategies to get ahead in this world. God, when they do things in a way to gain for themselves what I could never do in this life because it would dishonor you. What I'm tempted to do to compete with them, but I must resist for the sake of your glory. God, what do I do? 
The psalmist seeks to answer that question for you because, Christian, you will face trials where someone does something either at work, say they turn in a quarterly report, and you have to turn in a quarterly report, and your bonus depends upon that, and there's only so much bonus money available, and they turn in a falsified report so that they might get a greater bonus. How do you deal with that situation in relation to honoring God and dealing with your neighbor, loving thy neighbor while he wrongs you? Do you give him the shirt off your back? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you petition God in prayer? What is the right thing to do? The psalmist addresses that. And I would advocate that every Christian, every person, but truly every Christian, needs to trust in God. That is the lesson this morning. Every Christian needs to trust in God. Why? Every Christian needs to trust in God, one, because worldly means are insufficient. That's point one. Second, God is sufficient. Why trust in God? Because he is sufficient. He is everything that worldly strategies and worldly gain are not. Third, God is faithful to his promises. And as we go through the rest of these scriptures together, I'll tell you this, that I can't point out that God is sufficient without pointing you to his promises and how he fulfills them. And I can't point out how God is faithful to his promises without demonstrating that he is sufficient. And so we're gonna tackle points two and three together because they just go together. They reinforce one another. So let's look at verse six. We're looking at how worldly means and strategies are insufficient. There is a description provided in verse six of the type of person who trusts in their own power, their own wealth, their own abilities. It says that these are those who trust in their own wealth. Think Exodus 20. Think the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. What is the first commandment? No other gods. Neither yourself that receives praise, nor the things that you possess. No other gods. God says, I will have my glory and I will share it with no man, no creation. All glory will ultimately come to me. You don't even get to the other nine commandments without getting to this one. And in verse six, those who trust in their wealth, they were relying on their own strength, their own ability to move them forward. Here's the litmus test. If you want to know if you are trusting in your own wealth, relying on your own abilities, just ask, who gets the credit when things go well? When you succeed in your business and someone says, you have such an impressive business, when your family is so well behaved and someone says, man, I wish my kids would behave like yours, who do you give glory to? Do you say, oh, I learned a trick here and it comes with a lot of practice and those kind of things, or ultimately, do you take credit to where credit is due and say, praise God, only he makes it possible. I am insufficient, but he is sufficient. Give glory to God. When someone says, hey, you've got a wicked fastball, an amazing fastball, a great curveball. Hey, I'm so glad you're on the team. I think we have a chance at state this year. Do you say, yeah, you know, I've been working on that, that pitch, that grip on the fastball for a long time, or do you say, praise God, I'm so glad that he gave me both the ability and the game to enjoy. And that when I succeed, I might be able to point people back to him and say, God be glorified. God be praised. What does the glory of Patri say that we sing every Sunday? Glory be to our triune God. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Should be the end of every comment, every praise. Look further in verse six. It says, those who boast in the abundance of their riches, they boast. Paul has something to say about boasting. First Corinthians, elsewhere in the New Testament, First Corinthians four and verse seven, he says, 
For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The idea there is there is nothing that you have, talent, nor possession, nor money, nor time on this earth that God has not given to you. And to call it your own without acknowledging that there was someone who gave it to you, that you received it from, who can call it back at any moment, someone to whom you are accountable to, to not give credit to that God, that being, would simply be foolish. Yet it is the way of those who do not bow their knee to God in Christ. Look briefly at verse 18. It says, Though while he lives, this man who boasts in his riches, who trusts in his wealth, though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. The idea there is, while life is easy, while you're going with the the flow of the current, while things seem to be going well for you, it's almost easy to praise God. Now, I found that when things are going well for people, typically they still don't praise God. Typically, they forget to praise him because they're so comfortable. What do the scriptures say? Lord, don't give me so much that I forget you and don't give me so little that I have to steal to eat. Lord, keep me daily dependent on you. Help me to remember you. Give me this day my daily bread, Lord. That is the reality of the level of dependence that we have on God. Think of the story of Job. A whole book teaching Job and those around him. And Satan goes to God and Satan essentially says, God, Job only praises your name because life is easy for him. You've blessed him so much. If you took away his family, if you took away his wealth, if you took away his land, if you took away his friends, he would not praise you. And so God allows Satan to afflict Job. Job loses his family. Job loses his wife. Job loses his wealth. Job has his friends come and at first seem to be his friends and then eventually rebuke him falsely, not understanding the ways of God and the way that he operates. Job has a lesson to learn as well. But the question is, will Job praise God when he loses it all? Let me ask you, what does Job need to be able to praise God? He needs God himself. He cannot praise God apart from God. He cannot praise God apart from God's spirit working within him so that his heart will lift praises to God in the good times and bad. Because God is God and he has dominion over all his creation. The one who is the creator, the worker over the clay gets to say what the clay will do and what it will be used for. We are but clay. And God is the one who can and will determine whether we will praise him. And so we should seek, desire that. And Christians, I'll tell you that that is the reality. That the believing heart desires God before all things. It should. We're tempted at times. We fall. We fail. We backslide in sin at times. But ultimately, our desire should be in God, not because of what he gives to us in wealth and riches and food, whether you have land or a boat or a big family. But as the psalmist says in Psalm 73, verse 23, the psalmist says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? What am I looking forward to but you in heaven? Is there anything greater I could anticipate but being with my Savior? Verse 25 continued, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Can any of us say that this morning, Lord? I'm not distracted or seeking anything apart from you and that which glorifies you. 
Chew on that verse. How long can you pray, Lord, help me to desire you more? Help me to forget false idols. Help me to worship you alone and not myself. That will cover an hour of prayer, at least. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, Psalm 23, Psalm 73. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Not myself, but God, and he is my portion forever. First things first, God before all things. God's glory before our own. We deserve no glory, and he deserves it all. Then we get to verses 7 through 9 in Psalm 49. Verses 7 through 9. I like to refer to this as the equalizer, the passage which levels all. If you have any pride, any arrogance, you read this passage and you have to, you have to deal with the fact that man is insufficient. Verse 7, truly no man, there is no one who escapes the reality of this truth. No man can ransom another. No man can give to God the price of his life. That is to say, you cannot buy your life back from God. If you have a debt on the ledger with God that you owe him, you do not have the money, the good works, anything within your ability to which you can repay God, clear the slate. There is nothing you have to offer in yourselves. You see, when you look at this, verse eight, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. God deals in a currency all his own. All the world he created and all that is in it belongs to him anyways. What does God need gold or silver for? He doesn't need it. He puts it into the world for the sake of the economy, for the functioning of the world that we live within. God in his wisdom has done that. But when it comes to what God deals with, he seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And no man, no woman, no child, no elder can do this apart from God giving him their spirit. God deals in holiness. God deals in righteousness. God deals in perfection. God deals in receiving praise of which he is due. And verse on, it talks about the foolishness, verse nine, the foolishness of man. The man thinks that he can live on forever, that he'll never see the pit, that he'll never see eternity, that he'll never have to deal with his grave. He thinks that he can pay a little more and live a little longer and that science might save him and maybe by the time that the sciences get to a certain point, he'll break 100, but eventually he will stand before the Lord God Almighty who made him and have to give an account for his life and have to deal with the consequence of his sins before God. Now Christian, speaking to the Christian in the crowd, those who are gathered here this morning that belong to God in Christ, you will give an account for your life, but you will not suffer the wrath of God. Christ has taken that on the cross. Christ has done away with the wrath that God would give you, though you deserve it for your sin, because he has purchased you. He has suffered, so we might not suffer. But to the non-Christian, to the unbeliever, woe to you for the suffering that you will endure if you do not repent before you stand before God for the life that you live and the sin that you were born into in Adam. We sang earlier a song by Robert Lowry. He's the author of Nothing But the Blood. He wrote another song that he actually credits as being his most evangelistic song that he ever wrote. He was a pastor in the 1800s. He wrote many, many songs, many of which you would know. But he wrote Nothing But the Blood, which you all know. And he wrote another one called Working Will Not Save Me. To make verses 7 through 9 clear, I'm just going to read the stanzas to you briefly. 
Robert Lowry says, Working will not save me, purest deeds that I can do. Holiest thoughts and feelings, too, cannot form my soul anew. Working will not save me. Jesus wept and died for me. Jesus suffered on a tree. Jesus waits to make me free. He alone can save me. Weeping will not save me. Though my face were bathed in tears, that could not allay my fears. Could not wash the sins of years. Weeping will not save me. Waiting will not save me. Helpless, guilty, lost I lie. In my ear is mercy's cry. If I wait, I can but die. Waiting will not save me. Praying will not save me. All the prayers that I could say could not wash my sins away. All I owe could never pay. Praying will not save me. Faith in Christ will save me. Let me trust thy gracious son. Trust the work that he has done. To his arms, Lord, help me run. Faith in Christ will save me. That is the condition of man's heart. His need before the Lord for a redeemer. We move to verses 10 and 11. In 10 and 11, the psalmist says that this foolish man, we're spending time here, but it needs to be clear who not to be, who we are apart from Christ, so we can recognize what God has done when we find ourselves in the Spirit, in Christ, one by Christ. Verses 10 and 11, the unbelievers called lands by their own names, and ultimately they'll leave their wealth to others. When it says they called lands by their own names, think of the psalmist. He's a Jew. How did the Jewish economy work? What was their provision? What was their business? They were agricultural, right? They had grapes. They had olives. They had wheat. They had land allotted to them by name, by title, passed from father to son and father to son and father to son through the generations, bearing the name of the family to whom it was entrusted. What does this compare to? This compares today to someone who has a business that carries their last name. This compares today to having your wealth in a trust, in an estate plan. This compares today to being known for a certain talent and trusting in that talent as a means, as a vehicle, as a conduit to providing for your family. Whether it's firefighter or plumber, whether it's accountant, whether it's uh, so many different vocations, it's the idea that the thing is credited to the person who does it. I want you to envision this scenario with me. Picture a man named Mr. Shipley, because I don't think we have any Shipleys here in the audience today, though it very well could be you. Picture Mr. Shipley. Mr. Shipley has a business, Shipley Enterprises, and it's located on Shipley Estate, Shipley Farms. And Mr. Shipley, his sons and daughters work in the business. Maybe he even thinks one day they'll inherit the business. One of them might rise to the occasion, but not just yet. He's not done executing his plan, doing what he has set out to do in this life, what he wants to accomplish through the business, reach that next benchmark, develop that new product. One day, Mr. Shipley isn't feeling so well. His wife looks at him and says, honey, you don't look so good. Why don't you go to the doctor? Mr. Shipley, not thinking too much of it, he says, you know what, honey, that's a good idea. I've really missed my last couple of annual checkups. So Mr. Shipley sets the appointment. When the appointment comes, he goes into the office and he sits down with the doctor the doctor does a basic checkup, says, how are you feeling? What's your temperature? Any other surgeries I should know about? They draw some blood, and the doctor says, well, nothing majorly alarming at first, but let's wait for the blood results to come in. My office will call you. Give it a couple days. Mr. Shipley, leaving the office, doesn't think too much of it, goes back to his routine, goes back to working within his business, thinking about sports games he has to get his kids to, and thinking about uh, the 
board meeting that's coming up and thinking about, oh, should I buy that piece of property and so on and so forth. Two days pass, the doctor's office calls and said, Mr. Shipley, this is your doctor's nurse and your blood results are in. The doctor would like you to come in to discuss the results with you. Mr. Shipley, still not thinking too much of it, says, oh, my bad cholesterol maybe is too high or maybe I haven't been exercising enough after all. I really should get back to that routine again. So he goes in for the scheduled appointment. He's led to the private room and he sits down in the office. The door shuts and he waits by himself. There's a knock at the door. He hears the clipboard pulled off the wall. The doctor walks in. The doctor looks at Mr. Shipley and says, Mr. Shipley, we need to talk. I have to ask you, is your estate in order? The point is clear. Mr. Shipley does not have the time that he thought he had. He does not have infinite time. He is not even aware that this very hour, his life could be called from him. And what he thought was a minor thing was a major thing. And he has not yet dealt with the God who made him. What does it matter where his money passes if he is going to suffer eternally apart from the God who made him? The God who made a way of salvation. You see, Mr. Shipley is the foolish one if he does not repent of sin. Call upon the Savior. And so that's a challenge for us. You see, because we can glorify God on this earth even when we die. We can think about, how will the way that I die glorify God? How will the way that I have ordered the end of my life, how will the way that what I have written and my children will read, how will that testify to God's goodness? How will that testify to his glory? How will that testify to his sufficiency? Whenever my funeral takes place, will God's word be preached? Will he be glorified? Will he be lifted up? Is it okay that I'm forgotten as long as God's name and his works are remembered through all generations? Things to think about. Verse 12, briefly, it says that man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. I think about Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego in the flaming furnace. And if another man, an unbeliever, had gone into that furnace, he would have begged for mercy. He would have asked to be saved, even at the cost of renouncing the name of the faith. But you think about Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, and what do they do? They say, God can save us. He is powerful enough to do so, but if he does not, my chief concern is that God is glorified. May his name be praised. May his name be defended and honored, despite what happens to me in this life. Verse 13, and it says, after this foolish type of person, after them, people approve of their boast. You may have a following. You may have people who support the way that you view the world if you're an unbeliever. But what is the motive of those people who follow after you? They want what you have. They want success. They want title. They want wealth. And they don't want to have to acknowledge the God who made them. But for the Christian, fear of man does not precede fear of God. Fear of God is everything. What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. That is chief. So now we get to point two and point three briefly together. We're going to compare shepherds. Look at verse 14. It says, death will be the shepherd of the unbeliever. Cold, no love, no provision, no care. There to actually torture you, take you into your suffering. Be shepherd over your suffering. Meanwhile, the believer, the believer looks forward to God being his shepherd. What does Jesus say? Jesus says in John 14 that I am the good shepherd. I am the one who will protect for you. I am the one who will provide for you. Psalm 23, Psalm 23, you think about Jesus 
being the fulfillment of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. My shepherd king is for me if I am a Christian. What a contrast. Life and death. Shepherd and death. Look at verse 14 further. We're talking about God being sufficient. Why trust in God because he is sufficient? It says that there is a promise in verse 14. The upright shall rule over the wicked in the morning. The upright, those made righteous in Christ. Righteousness, not your own, but given to you by God through the Spirit, from the blood of Christ shed on the cross, the only exclusive soul, S-O-L-E, exclusive way of salvation, being reconciled to God and having your debt paid for. Christ. In him, you will be raised in the morning to preside, to be in the company of those who are over the wicked, above them, raised out of the misery that they will endure for forever. Verse 14, we have another, uh, an extension of that promise. In the morning, it's right around the corner. Christ's return is imminent. Live anticipating his return. Look forward and joy, Christian, as you work day in, day out, and raise your families, and go to the office, and do weekend plans with family, even on this Mother's Day. Look forward to Christ's return and praise his name. It is so close. And even if Christ does not return before we die, in the span of God's timing, for an eternal, infinite God, and one who is drawing us into eternity, it is but a little while that we suffer until he returns. And look at verse 14 further. A little more of this promise. It promises those who are not in God will have no place to dwell. They will have no comfort, no renewal, no restoration, no peace. But the Christian, just the opposite. You will be restored in Christ. Every tear wiped away. Every sin gone. And you will dwell. That means you will be in the presence of your Lord, God Almighty, in the presence of your Savior. And you will look upon his face. And you will say, there is the one who died for me and saved me. What joy, Christian. What things to look forward to. A place to dwell forever. That God would make you a holy vessel in the likeness of his son, that you are then able to stand in his presence again as we were created to do that we might praise him. A promise, verse 15. Nearing the end, verse 15. God will ransom my soul from the power of death, from the power of sin, for he will receive me. O death, where is your sting? The sting is done away with. The power of death conquered. Jesus demonstrated his authority over life and death whenever he both willingly gave up his life, being very man of very man, but also being very God of very God, raised from the grave in the power of the Spirit and raised to life eternal, seated on the right hand of God the Father until he comes back again. Death has no power over you, Christian. Not ultimately. Do not fear death, but look forward to Christ in the morning that comes. God will ransom my soul. He will receive me because he is the one who has purchased me. God will have what he buys for himself. He will have what he wins to himself. Christ will have you, church, gathered saints. He will have his bride, and that is you. And all the saints who worship this morning and all the saints around the globe, saints that have passed in earlier generations and saints that the Lord has yet to call to himself and gather to himself that are in the Lamb's book of life, God will call them to himself. Christ will have his bride, and have her eternal. 2 Corinthians tells us all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. We find ourselves in verse 16. And what's happening here in verse 16? The psalmist says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. We find ourselves coming back to the question, to the issue that we started with. Lord, 
Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me? Lord, how am I to respond when worldly men use worldly means for worldly gain? What the psalmist does, like when you have an appointment as if you had an appointment in a building that you've never been in before and your meeting's on the fourth floor, you park and you go into the building and you find the directory of the building and you figure out which office you need to go to. You take the elevator and once you get to the office, you see what's in the building. You see what, what works are being done in the office. You understand then what's in the building. But on the way out, you go the same way you came in. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He says, I've taken you in. I've shown you around. You've been made wiser for what's on the inside. Now return to the question that we started with. How will you respond, Christian? If you look at verse 20, the psalmist just drives home the final point. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. And in verse 19, closing here, the psalmist says, even if you do well for a little while in this life, eventually, if you do not belong to God in Christ, you will go to the generation of those who thought and believed like you, that you did not need to be reconciled to God in Christ. The apostle John, author of the gospel that we have, he is known for contrasting light and darkness, life and death, wisdom and foolishness, things that stand in opposition to one another. And he says, would you be in the light? Do you relish the light or do you relish the darkness? Which way are you going? Your eternity is resting in one of two camps. Either you are with the Lord in Christ and have everything to look forward to, though you suffer for a while, or your judgment is waiting and you will have to suffer the wrath that Christ would pay for you if you would bow before him. Let us pray. Triune God, above creation, king over history and all things, shepherd of the lives of your people, we give you praise this day for paying the ransom for our souls with the blood of your son that we might dwell with you forever, forgiven by you in Christ and made holy for your glory. Lord, help us to trust in you and not in ourselves that we might enjoy glorifying you more and reflecting more of you to the world in the power of the spirit. Lord, we need you. Make us what we are not that you might receive glory that is due your name. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.